Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. Welcome everybody back to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me today. Okay, are you ready for your mind to be blown? Seriously, this podcast episode today is so fascinating. I I mean, honestly, I've done nearly 200 episodes of the Animals to the Max podcast, and this is one of the most fascinating interviews I have ever done, period. On the show today, I have the Venom Doctor. That's right. I have Venom Doc, Dr. Brian Fry from the University of Queensland. And I initially reached out to Brian because I wanted to talk about the Komodo Dragon. I've always wanted to feature the Komodo Dragon. They're probably one of my favorite reptile species. When I did a little more digging, his work focuses on Komodo Dragon Venom Evolution. That is right. Komodo Dragons are venomous and all monitors are venomous. That's right. My monitor lizard, Savvy, my Savannah monitor, he's venomous. Those monitors you see in pet stores that people keep around the world, they're venomous. Now, let me tell you, they're mildly venomous and they're not gonna, you know, they're not medically important to where if you get bit, you're gonna be put into the hospital. But it's really fascinating because when I was a kid, you know, learning about reptiles, I had a million reptile books. We were taught the only two venomous lizards were the Gila monster and the beaded lizard. Well, mind blown, there are well over 200 venomous lizards in the world. And today we talk about it with the Venom Doc. I mean, honestly, I felt like I've been lied to my whole life uh, just regarding Komodo dragons. And I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen those nature documentaries where the Komodo dragon bites a water buffalo and it slowly waits for the buffalo to die. And then it, you know, the buffalo dies because of the Komodo's harmful bacteria. Yeah, that's a load of crap. Did you know that there has never been a documented case of a Komodo dragon actually killing a water buffalo? Can you guys believe this? My mind is blown. So I promise you guys are going to love this interview. It is so fascinating, especially for all my fellow reptile keepers out there who maybe have a pet monitor lizard and they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that Charlie, my pet monitor is actually slightly venomous. Anyway, don't be alarmed though. Um, But it's just, like I said, it's super fascinating. So we discuss the Komodo dragon, but more importantly, we discuss venom and monitor lizards. It's so interesting. I just loved, you know, talking to Brian, the Venom Doc, about this. I encourage you to join us over in the Patreon-only after show because we talk more about the Komodo Dragon and visiting the Komodo Dragons in Indonesia. It has been a bucket list of mine to go visit them, so to actually talk to someone who has done this numerous times is incredible. He also, this is crazy, Brian talks about the time when he was hunted by a Komodo Dragon. It is a crazy story. If you want to join us in the after show, all you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash the animals to the max podcast. Okay, uh, before we get started, if you can please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to the show, a review really helps and also subscribing to the show. 80% of you are subscribed. I appreciate that. The other 20% All you have to do is just hit that subscribe button. That way you will never miss another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. With that said, let's get to it. Let's talk to the Venom Doc, Dr. Brian Fry. Thank you very much for having me. I am so happy. And by the way, when I called you on my Skype, you noticed that I was holding a monitor lizard. 
Yeah, and uh, clocked very quickly that it was a very cute little Savannah monitor. I know. I was so embarrassed to tell you, though, because, I mean, you work with like (laughs) you work with the Komodo dragon. So for me to pop up with this little tiny little Savannah monitor, I was like, oh, man, he noticed that. (laughs) Well, actually, Savannahs are cool. We just actually published a paper on them showing that they're a remarkably derived goanna, because if you look at them, they're very slow moving, yet. They're living quite successfully alongside a very high density of large cobras. And what we actually just published is that savannas are the only monitor lizard that we found so far that are actually resistant to cobra venoms. So they've developed like the honey badger and you know, resistance to those neurotoxins. So the savannah monitor don't care. Oh my god, I love that. Are you serious? Now, I knew they ate yeah. sna- I knew they ate snakes, but I didn't realize that they were immune to that venom. So you said you said the only monitor lizard so far found out to be immune to that venom? Yeah, so savannas don't eat snakes, but the larger relatives, Varanus abigularis, the white throats, do eat um, cobras. And part of we haven't sequenced from the white throats yet, but we speculate in the paper that the trait that allowed the savannas to become resistant and therefore no longer be vulnerable prey items is actually what triggered one radiation of them to become a giant goanna that predates upon cobras. So our hypothesis is that when we sequence abigularis is that will show that they'll actually be resistant too. And with this paper, you know, we love having fun titles with our papers and where we have a catchy bit, colon, and then the technical bit. So on this one, the technical bit after the colon was modifications of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor confers resistance in the savannah monitor to sympatric cobras. And the um, catchy bit was like the ultimate dad joke in a scientific title. It was not Goanna get me. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I like that. I like that, dude. I, I I guess I should mention, I mean, your background is in venom. I mean, you study venom. I mean, not just in Komodo dragons, and that's kind of what your focus is. Isn't that correct? Yeah, so we work on snakes, which are my first true love, spiders, scorpions, stingrays, uh, even work on the only venomous primate out there, the slow lowers, uh, Komodo dragons. We just published a paper on caterpillar venom. So if it's venomous, we play with it. And you're the go-to venom guy, I would say. The go-to venom expert. Um, yeah, we're we're doing all right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I okay, so I first of all, I knew I wanted to feature Komodo dragons on the show. And I came across an article where you were in uh, National Geographic. You were online in one of their articles about the Komodo dragons. It, it was dated, but it was talking about how for so long, we thought Komodos were, you know, used this harmful bacteria. And that's something I used to teach people. And that's something I remember, like, as a kid, looking at my reptile VHS tapes, that's what you knew, that they had dangerous saliva and the bacteria kills their prey. And your research says that's completely false. We've been lied to. <laughs> it's There's a, a very classic statement in science that, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Now, using bacteria as a weapon is as extraordinary of a claim as you can make. And 
it's been something for which there's never actually been any data to support it. It all comes down to a 1980 book by a guy named Offenberg, who spent a year on Komodo studying them. At the big, about 20% into the book, he describes seeing some infected water buffalo. That's the last you hear of it until the end of the book, where he has these throwaway paragraphs of this elaborate co-evolution of Komodos and bacteria as a weapon. And that's it. Nothing in between to actually support it. And then this enchanting fairy tale was taken and ran with, um, fabricated in countless documentaries. And it's actually not a very common event for water buffalo to get infected. Now they do, but the way to understand that is that, first off, Komodos aren't from Indonesia. They actually evolved in Australia. The oldest fossils of Komodos by a few million years are all from Queensland. Um, secondly, Komodos aren't even the biggest to have lived. They're the third biggest to have lived. The two bigger ones were also in Australia, when, um, including the giant Megalania that got up to seven and a half meters long. Um, so Komodos, Megalania, and then there's the second species is about five meters, are all basically just supercharged lace monitors. Nothing special about them, about the skull anatomy, the teeth. Um, Komodos and the five meter one radiated out from Australia. The five meter one radiated to Timor, went extinct there. Komodos radiated to Indonesia, but they um, went extinct in Australia when the megafauna declined. And they, you know, the Komodos and its two larger relatives, both went ex or all three of them went extinct at that point. So there's been nothing about the Komodos that makes them unique. Um, and then with the water buffalo, they're not from the islands. The water buffalo were only brought there 300 years ago by Dutch explorers as a food item. They were left on the item on the islands when the Dutch left. The, they're actually only restricted to a few valleys in Komodo and Rincha Islands, so very localized areas. Now, the way to understand a water buffalo is the name, water buffalo. So when you encounter them in Southeast Asia on the mainland, when they're startled, they flee into the water. That's their main um, as aspect of, prey, of escape. Well, the only water available to them on Rincha and Komodo are these stagnant, rocky watering pools that are about twice the size of your average backyard swimming pool. And I remember the first time we went to Rincha, you can smell these watering holes from hundreds of meters away. They are exactly what you would expect you know, if you took a couple big backyard pools, filled them full of cow crap and let them cook <laughs> in the tropical sun, it's exactly what they would smell like. And I remember the first time we went there thinking to myself, oh, you know, I better not fall in that water because, you know, me being me, I'm always injured. And I had a pretty nasty cut on my leg. I'm like, oh, and then I thought to myself, oh, no, it can't be that simple, can it? Well, water buffalo have a 100% escape rate from Komodos. Komodos are, are nowhere near big enough to kill a water buffalo. The wounds that they inflict are not mortal wounds. There's never been a case of a water buffalo being killed outright by a Komodo. So they bugger off. And then they're escaping a predator. They follow their instincts and they jump into the water that's filled with their own feces. So they get an infection from that. And that happens you know, infrequently, but it does happen. But the key is that 
despite everything you've ever seen on a nature documentary, there has never been a documented case of the Komodo that did the initial biting actually benefiting from the water buffalo dying, this slow death that takes a week to a week and a half to die. Like we tracked one for a week and a half watching it slowly die. And there were countless Komodos coming by, checking it out. And then once it finally died, it's scavenged. Well, nature doesn't run a charity. There's no selection pressure for a trait if the offending animal doesn't benefit from it. But whenever you watch a Komodo feed, they're actually remarkably clean animals. They're quite fastidious about cleaning themselves up afterwards, where they'll lip lick and rub their head in the leaves for 10 to 15 minutes to get all the gore off. And they're actually much cleaner than like a Tasmanian devil, a lion, or your average five-year-old kid who's chomping on his classmate's leg. So <laughs> when we did the sampling of their mouths, you know, yes, they have bacteria in there, but so do we. You know, the, the only bacteria they had were just transient bacteria representative of the last bit of water that they drank or the last thing that they happened to chew on. And the same thing you see when, you know, in captive animals that the bacteria is just quite you know variable but the bacteria load because they're such a clean animal is actually lower than that of your typical carnivore so all of this is a complete fairy tale but it's one of these ones where wow did we get a lot of pushback on this where like la zoo and hawaii zoo on honolulu were brilliant they were so cool about helping us with this study la zoo even let us sample Komodo dragons, as they were hatching from their eggs, before their tongues touched a thing, and their, or they even had their first drink of water. Because, of course, if there is actually bacteria being used as a weapon, they should be inoculating the babies with the eggs, but they aren't. And, but other zoos, who shall not be named, <laughs> um, not only refused to participate, but some of them actually took it upon themselves to call other zoos and tell them not to participate because we were crackpots. You know, and this is something that there's no vested interest in. This is not like climate change where you can understand the pushback from the companies because their vast sums of their profits are being threatened. You know, so therefore they you know they have you know a duplicitous and evil reason for pushing back, but an understandable, you know, psychologically understandable one but there are some zoos that refuse to change their signage about the komodo dragons you can go to zoos and they still talk about bacteria even after being contacted and told that this is rubbish um when we were publishing the findings the we got huge pushback from some of the reviewers vacuous you know where they had nothing to argue about other than you know authority and it took us a year to get the paper accepted and then the journal sat on it for a year so it was incredible. And we thought that, you know, that was a lot. But publishing on the Venom has been even more interesting, where when I did my undergraduate degree, I did a double major and a minor. So I did publish two honors theses. One was on molecular bio, but the other was on scientific philosophy. And so I did a major in molecular bio, a major in scientific philosophy. But then I added a minor in psychology because my scientific philosophy to um, honors thesis was about how you know, what's the role of the individual mindset and how scientific revolutions are accepted among the scientific community and it was interesting that once you hit a certain level 
scientists don't act like scientists. They actually act like religious adherents in war with another religion, you know, one cult up against another, where my final cynical conclusion was that because they're threatened by their place in the hierarchy by a new discovery, that scientific revolutions are truly never accepted until the previous generation die out. And that's been pretty much borne out with how we've gone about with the Venom stuff, because ironically, Offenberg in his book, despite his statements about bacteria being absolutely evidence-free, ironically had the first data without realizing it about Komodos having venom, because there's some really horrible sections in the book that you know, read them with a very thick German accent, and it sounds like something out of a World War II torture camp, because they did things like tie goats up to trees, let the buffalo, let the Komodo dragons tear into them and then chase the Komodos off and then just sat there and, you know, very detached, you know, Germanic script and make notes of what happened. And um, they described that, you know, they found it very curious that the goats seemed to be almost anesthetized. They rapidly went into shock. They were unusually quiet, even with their guts literally hanging halfway out. They bled more profusely than they expected by the mechanical damage alone and that they <laughs> let longer than they would have expected you know all things that we've documented in the venom that the you know komodo dragons share the exact same big gland on the lower jaw on either side that you find in their very close relative the gila monster and beaded lizard they have some of the exact same toxins in there that the heloderma species have so anticoagulants Shock inducers, we're just about to publish on some neurotoxins, uh, ones that drop the blood pressure like a stone, which explains the dizziness part. And you know, so if it's the same gland as the Gila monster, same secretions being produced with the same bioactivities, well, to us, in our simplistic view of the world, same terminology, venom gland, venom, and toxins. But wow, have we had some pushback on this. And, you know, people that, you know, really are acting like flat earthers, you know, they're acting like with some of these people, it's, you know, like arguing with a creationist, you know, it's all a bunch of yeah, buts and shifting goalposts, you know, but it's ironic that it's a lot of the same people with the same arguments that we had when we were publishing years before this about all snakes sharing a common venomous ancestor, because, of course, you can't have things like hollow fangs and high pleasure uh, delivery systems without something already there worth delivering. So the cobra only evolved high pressure systems and hollow fangs when neurotoxins had already evolved in rear fang snakes. So therefore venom evolved prior to the syringe-like delivery system. Well, same people, same arguments, same rolled eyes by us. Wow, okay, I feel, first of all, I have, I, my mouth, I wish the listeners could see me. My mouth is just open because I feel like I've been lied to my whole life. My whole <laughs> life. I'm serious. There's like, no Santa either, mate. <laughs> no, no. Don't. <laughs> Seriously, it makes me mad. I mean, literally, I they just had a recent planet Earth where, I mean, I don't know if it was a recent one, but it was within the last 10 years where they did a feature on, I'm sure you saw it, where, they, where the Komodo bit the water buffalo, then they... Fought, you know, waited for days and months and they watched the buffalo die and it came back. I, you still go to zoos and I just saw a Komodo at a zoo a couple days ago and you still see the same signage. 
It's it's insane. Yep. I yeah. Okay. Oh wait. Okay. How did this? How did it get past us? Because we know about the Gila monster. We know about the beetle lizard. You're saying they're so similar. How did the? How did we? How did the Komodo dragon just escape us finding out they were venomous for so many years? Was it just this one guy, this one report or book that he wrote? Um, it just goes down to that central beauty of science that it's amazing what you can discover if you just take the time to look. You know, how it got past, nobody looked. It's as simple as that. You know, that we knew everything we knew about Komodos and moving on. Now, but what's interesting is that if you look at, you know, the ben, you know, I think part of the misunderstanding is that, you know, when we're talking about like Komodos and other monitor lizards being venomous is that what we're talking about is venom as part of a combined weapons arsenal system where the teeth are the leading weapon. The venom is there in a backup role. So to put this in perspective, with the when the Komodos attack natural sized prey animals, a 40 to 50 kilo sized prey, which are the size that they evolved in Australia to hunt on, you know, they were feeding on young megafauna. So when they go after a pig or a deer, that's within their prey scape. That 70% of the animals die in the first 15, 20 minutes from catastrophic blood loss. That's due entirely to the teeth. Um, to put this in perspective, like at one of our field sites, an eight-year-old boy was killed by um, some by a big Komodo when he went out to the grass to use the toilet, caught him in the back of the leg, sliced straight through the femur, I mean, straight through the femoral artery, and um, the first blood spurt went about two meters. Then it grabbed him mid-body and swung him into a tree, partially crushing his skull, and then started running off of him, being chased by two of the kids' uncles who managed to get the Komodo to drop it. And so with that, you know, kind of catastrophic mechanical damage, Venom's not playing a role. But over another 20% of the animals are killed over the next three to four hours by persistent bleeding, where the Komodo will come in and make repeated attacks. So we've documented this in the field, as have other people. So this brings the Komodo up to an aggregate 90% kill rate which is super predator level. This is one of, if not the highest success, prey success rates of mega predators out there. Higher than a lion, higher than a great white, higher than a crocodile. I mean, this is just an extraordinary level of success. So a 90% kill rate, well, they're getting that extra 20% from the venom. You know, that's a massive contribution to their success rate. But nevertheless, you know, the teeth are the primary weapon. You know, so that's why like, People who are keeping pet monitor lizards, yes, they're venomous, but they're not dangerous to humans. You know that, so they're not medically important for, to humans from that perspective. Well, they are medically important from the large, double serrated teeth. Like you know, the two microsurgeries and a team of plastic surgeons it took to put my hand back together after one of our lace monitors sliced through it and cut the tendon, nerve bundle, and artery in three different places across two fingers. You know, just made an absolute mess out of my hand, and it's still not quite the same as it was. You know, so people who are keeping large monitors as pets don't have to worry about the venom. It's going to sting. You're going to bleed. You'll get some muscle acheness, but you got to worry about the big teeth. Yeah, and I have been bit by monitors. Actually, one of my worst bites was by a Nile monitor, 
And um, it was funny. I was only 13 years old and I was telling my friend, I was like, now make sure you hold it like this so it doesn't bite you because if they bite you, it won't let go. And sure enough, Cujo, <laughs> Cujo, that was his name. Oh, he was nasty. I mean, you, you can't blame him. <laughs> He's just, Nile. oh my God. I actually had a nice Nile monitor for years. He died of old age, but he was like a puppy dog. Anyway, that's a different story. But um, but he was a, yeah, a, like a nasty. And by the way, when I say nasty, it's not like they're just being monitor lizards. It's just, yeah. I don't think Nile's, do great under human care i just don't think they make the great the best pets because they get big and they can be pretty aggressive but yeah he bit me and he held on for like two minutes man it was horrible and just chewed he chewed into my and he was only like two feet but still chewed into my finger i mean oh man that that hurt um but let's go back to that so I feel like a lot of people's minds are blown because when we, especially reptile enthusiasts, you know, me growing up, when you read your little reptile books that I would collect, you would know there's only two venomous lizards in the world, the Gila monster and the beaded lizard. So this stuff came out and I know that you started releasing stuff back in, in like 2009 with your study, but I mean, are you saying all monitor lizards are venomous? Yeah, all anguiomorpha lizards, so monitor lizards, alligator lizards, your you know, arboreal alligator lizards, um, and you know, so everything in that heloderma through monitor lizard clade, including like the Borneo earless monitor. So they all share the same glands and they all share the same toxins. And then these glands have been extremely derived independently you know, and formed into these much more complex glands on two separate occasions. Once in the Heloderma lizards, and then again in the common ancestor of the Borneo earless monitor and the Varanus genus of monitor lizards. So they have extremely complex glands that store, that are hollow and store a liquid venom in there. And that's in the lower jaw. Yeah. Really? So I, and I also, what about some rumors? And I, like I said, I haven't really followed up, but some people saying like iguanas can even be slightly venomous. Have you heard that too? So, well, so this um, is, goes to sort of, you know, a, mis a popular misunderstanding of what we've been saying. So what our research has been saying is that in the common, last common ancestor of your iguania, your anguiomorpha lizards and your snakes, was an animal that had very, very primitive forms of the glands on both the upper and lower jaws. Now, in your iguanids and your agamids, not much happened. And in most cases, it was secondarily lost or switched over to massive mucus production, like in the case of the iguana, where they put out a lot of mucus to swallow the leaf matter. But there's still traces of that gland there. But we say in that lineage that it's in its incipient stage you know it's and it's just about ready to happen stage but with the anguiomorpha and the snakes they ended up favoring opposite sides but when you go into your very primitive snakes like your asian pipe snakes in the cylindrophus genus they actually have venom glands on both the upper and lower jaws some of the anguiomorpha lizards like some of the anguid lizards have still have glands on both the upper and lower jaws they haven't completely lost the upper jaw version of it but by and large you know the anguiomorphous favored the lower jaw snakes favored the glands on the upper jaw but evolution is like a crime scene you know you never lose you know all trace of something so like in australia they use a snake venom detection kit to match up which antivenom to give to people 
Well, if you run Python saliva, if someone's been bitten by a Python, it actually gives a false positive for tiger snake oh. because pythons evolved from that Asian pipe snake-like animal, switching the glands over to massive mucus production to swallow their mega prey. But there's still a tiny bit of toxin still being produced, not enough to cause any symptoms, but enough to trigger a really sensitive test. So they, you know, so you're like a black-headed python. We've shown makes still very, very, very trace amounts of the same neurotoxin that a cobra does, but it's not there in any physiological way because they're using the glands to produce mucus. But there's still, like I said, that detectable amount using ultra-sensitive tests because it's there still in very, very trace levels. So with your iguanas and things like that. If you sequence their glands, they produce many of the same proteins that we find in the heloderma and the monitor lizards, but we would never, we've never called them venomous. We just say that they, re they retain a trace of that ancestral condition, but many people have, and in some cases with colleagues that I argue about at conferences, have willfully misconstrued what we've been saying to make us look ridiculous. You now, where they're saying, they're saying iguanas are venomous, we're saying, no, jackass, that's not what we've been saying. <laughs> <laughs> Man, my mind is, okay, my mind's blown. So, I mean, I, okay, and by the way, I, I've known about the Komodos being venomous. So, so when, okay, so when people ask me, because people usually say, do you have any venomous animals? I say, no, I mean, I, I mean, I usually, I usually only say my tarantulas. So now you're telling me I should say, actually, yes, my Savannah Monitor Savvy is venomous slightly. Yeah but not medically important. And this is where it also wow. gets quite contentious because people feel threatened because there's a lot of legislation out there against venomous animals. Oh, yeah. And they're worried about their animals being caught up in that, where that legislation is designed about venomous animals that are medically important. So cobras and rattlesnakes, it's not there to capture things like your hognose snake or your American racer, which is also technically venomous, or a garter snake. Yes. Yes. But they're not medically important. So just as all spiders are venomous, only a handful of them are medically important. With the monitor lizards, we've gone through great pains to emphasize that we're not saying that they're venomous from a human medicine or legislative perspective. We're talking about venomous from a biological reality in the natural world type venomous. So in an, okay, so I present these animals to a lot of schools. What I should say to make it uh, for something for a kid to understand is that they this is a you know monitor lizard. He is ha, is slightly venomous, but not enough to hurt us. Like there's small traces of venom. Like is that what you would say? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily small traces, but rather you can say that it's from the perspective of a small prey animal that they're okay. venomous. In, you know, or defending themselves against a potential predator that, you know, like, for example, like the a lot of the monitors and like in your your Australian tree monitor clade, your Scalaris clade, you know, are people in Australia know that when you get bit by these, it hurts as in like it's a chemical stinging from like your Scalaris or your Timorensis, things mm -hmm. in, the, in that clade that when they bite you, it stings. Yeah. like a bee sting, like 45 minutes to an hour or longer. So that's a case of where it's a pain-inducing venom, and we are suggesting that in that case, these animals are using it in a defensive 
capacity. You know, versus other ones like your your lace monitors, we're you know suggesting are using it more in predation capacity, but in combination with the very large teeth. So you could use it as an example of where our convenient terms from an anthro, you know, from a human centric point of view, don't capture the messy biological reality that's out there. So they're a good illustration of, you know, semantics, you know, that our convenient little categories aren't necessarily reflective of, you know, re the natural world where things aren't black or white. So like, you know, for example, the American black racer, whose name is Kaluber Constrictor is a scientific name. They don't constrict. <laughs> they, don't, they, they actually just bite and savagely chew onto their little lizard or frog prey until it goes limp from the neurotoxins and they swallow it. So the American black racer is venomous and uses its venom in prey capture. But it's not dangerous to humans because, like in that case, you know, a lot of the rear fang snakes, their venom is like 100, 200 times more potent on a frog or a lizard than it is a mammal like a human. So venomous from whose perspective? Like, you know, your brown tree snake, Boiga regularis, you know, as, you know, is devastatingly potent if you're a bird on Guam where it's been introduced and where they've driven 14 of the 17 species into extinction since, you know, subsequent to the introduction of the snakes in World War II. But if you take that same amount of venom and inject it into a mouse, it has almost no effect. Oh my God. So you're telling me, <laughs> this is so interesting. I, I guess I don't know why. I guess before talking to you, I always put Komodo dragons on this pedestal. <laughs> and yet you're telling me that my Savannah monitor savvy it has the same amount of venom as a Komodo dragon. Komodos are just supersized on these islands. Is that what I'm getting yeah. at? Look at, look at any monitor lizard and you'll see a big bulge running the length of the lower jaw yeah. of every single monitor lizard out there. Yeah. Like, you have your Savannah nearby. Um, he's, no, I, I, I do not, but I was holding him to, like, literally an hour. If you, up, if you just Google a you know, monitor lizard right now, any monitor lizard, and just look at the photo, it'll instantly leap out to you now, this big macaroni gland running the length of the lower jaw. Every single monitor lizard out there, and they're big glands these are not trivial structures i uh, i just cannot believe it yeah, well, I have to find, go go into google right now I'm and just type it. whatever species I'm and gonna... then as soon as you look at a photo it the gland is now going to just leap out at you you it's know it's so big and has a shadow underneath it i feel like i'd rather see so, okay, I'd rather look at my Savannah mod. Let me let me look at my Savannah. Hold on. You know what? Let's do it better. Why don't I look yeah, at a pi looking I, at the side of the, the head? Yeah, you're gonna see that this gland is now gonna be having big neon signs pointing to it. I just feel like I've been lied. Okay, I'm gonna look at it. Hold on, I'm trying to find it. I feel like I've been lied to my whole life, and <laughs> I want to write a book or, or write a book, write a letter to all those people. Okay, you know what? Here we go. Okay. Oh God. Yep. I wish I could share this with, hold on. I'm just zooming in. <laughs> hold on. I mean, I, hold on. You can't unsee it now. Right along the jaws, right? Holy Lordy. Look at that. Yeah. On the lower jaw, it just sticks out. Yeah. 
And so if you next time you hold it and you press on that, you'll feel it. It's squishy. It's a gland. I know. That, yeah. I just like, I don't know why I just always put these Komodos on a pedestal. Like I, Savvy's just as cool. He's just a little miniature version. Yeah. That's the exact same gland that a Gila monster has. What? But the Gila monster. We're producing the exact same secretions. With the exact but, same biological But Gila effects. monsters are, are more deadly, more more venomous, correct? Um, well, the gland on them is bigger, and the teeth are grooved, so it makes the delivery more efficient, but that's it. And also, you know, like with the Gila monster and beaded lizards, uh, we think that they've been equally misunderstood. When people talk about their venom being used for defense, well, we disagree with that because... You know, a paralytic neurotoxin is not a defensive compound. And also look at things like your big baited lizards. They're not marked at all for bright warning coloring. They're actually camouflaged in coloring. You know, like, you know look at like your Alvarezi, you know, living on volcanic rock and it's black. It's disappearing. Or your Horodom, you know, is also very cryptically marked. You know, you put it in its natural environment of strong shadows and light and it disappears. So with the Heloderma, you know, we think that their venom is actually geared more towards predation than defense because like healers are mostly nocturnal and they spend most of their life underground and that people say, oh, well, they eat mostly nestling birds. No, most of the ones that have been recovered have nesting birds in their stomachs because most of the ones that have been recovered have been ones that have been above ground when the birds are nesting and they've been hit by a car. The other 10 months of the year, they're underground feeding on rodents. Huh. That is just, man, I just am so fascinated. I mean, honestly, I'm going to have to change the title of this podcast because it was going to all be about Komodo dragons, but I think it needs to title. <laughs> the title needs to be mind blown or needs to be, ven I, I just, it's really interesting. So, okay. So what do you say? How many lizards are venomous then? Because I mean, but for for so long, people have only said two. So how how do you how do you respond to that question then? So if you look, for example, like the American alligator lizards, when they chew on something, it actually you know gets very frothy very very quick. And if, when we've done histology of their glands, their glands aren't as complex as the varanids. They have more of the primitive structure, but there's this large teardrop associated with each tooth. And each of those teardrops is, has a hollow lumen inside storing liquid. So this is, you know, your American alligator lizards, your Mexican ones, you know, like in the Abronia genus, also like, you know, Celestis, your galley wasps, you know, that you find, you know, the, the sort of the burrowing um, alligator lizards. So if you add up all your anguiomorpha lizards, so you've got, you know, 70-odd species of um, monitor lizards. You've got your Borneo earless monitor, and then you've probably got another, uh, I couldn't even begin to count how many anguid lizards there are, particularly at whose taxonomy you're looking at, but probably at least another 100 lizards there. So all up, probably about 200 venomous lizards just within the anguiomorpha clade. Wow. So 200. Yeah, more or less. Wow. Okay. I, yeah, I just think it's so interesting, man. So I, okay. Well, <laughs> I just like totally thought we were going to 
you know, just talk about these Komodos and just how, I mean, they're just supersized on these islands. That's just crazy to me. That just blows my mind. Um, so I guess, what is your goal going into these findings? Are you trying to change everyone's mind? Are you trying to inspire the next generation to stop passing along this false information? Because, I mean, I'm sure some people are pretty angry. <laughs> oh, yeah. The amount of crap we've had to put up with in character assassinations has been a perfect validation of my very cynical owner's thesis about scientific <laughs> evolution. Um, so when we go into the studies, I would love to say that we have some grand noble goal or we have a hypothesis that we want to test. But in the reality, most of our research is driven because we're eight-year-old kids at heart who just want to learn more about these animals that we think are so cool. And a lot of our research is driven by, all right, what haven't we screwed around with or where haven't we gone and wrecked a rental car? You know, so you know, th those are basically the two main drivers of our research. You know, it, you know, so we just you know want to have a lot of fun playing around with cool animals in the field. And then when we write up the papers, we are the masters of the hypothesis generated after results, which you know a purist is going to you know, scorn. Apparently, you're supposed to go out and test a hypothesis, but our simple philosophy is that. If we amass a big enough pile of high quality data, some sort of interesting story is naturally going to emerge. So in the case of the venomous lizards, we didn't actually even set out to study those. Rather, this was um, a good example of how every crisis becomes an opportunity. So when I first started working with snake venoms, we were shocking with our personal protective equipment. We didn't even think about, you know, work that venom could be dangerous when you're working because you, it needs a wound to enter your body. So, you know, as long as we're not sticking ourselves to the needle in the lab, it should be good. So we were, we would, in the nineties, we'd be opening up containers with grams full of venom and powder be flowing around everywhere. Well, if you inhale a foreign protein, that's an excellent way to develop an allergy. That's why, like, most small animal vets eventually have to stop working with cats because the cat dander is very allergenic. People develop horse allergies. Most people who work intensively with a particular group of animals eventually have to stop working with them. Like, a lot of animal care technicians can no longer work with mice, you know, those sorts of things. Well, I developed an extremely severe life-threatening allergy to snake venom, where now even a hatchling of a species that's not particularly dangerous can kill me from allergic shock, much like someone who's allergic to bees. So this meant that it had severely curtailed my ability to work with venomous snakes. So it forced me out of my comfort zone to go out and work with other venomous animals. So with that, I we just went out and did some huge desert trips, just looking at everything we could find. I was out there with a mate of mine who was doing um, locomotion research on monitor lizards. So like we were out in Western Australia catching two and a half meter parentes, um, out in the deep desert catching the um, you know, variety of different monitor lizards and just having a grand old time. And I just remember, you know, think that that whole idea of venom um, and, or sorry, bacteria as a weapon just never sat right with me. And so we started looking at them and then it just, you know, I noticed the glands on the lower jaw and having done a lot of work with Gila monsters and beaded lizards, you know, it didn't take me long to connect those dots. 
dug through some of the literature of a guy named Elazar Kokhba, an Israeli scientist who I ended up becoming really good friends with, had done some histology showing these glands existed. Monitor lizard had shown this in the 60s, was completely ignored. He called them the gland of Gabe. Um, so we got in contact with him and we you know, did a big study and then we showed this single early evolution of um, venom and reptiles that we published in Nature in um, 2006. And it just kind of went from there. And then you know, looked very intensively at other animals from there on. So it was a case of where working with the lizards came out of that crisis because of the um, snake venom. So it was, you know, and then it just, you know, it's just, we've just continued to tinker with it ever since. Yeah. I, uh, I find it so fascinating. I think I would say, and I hope you'd agree with me, probably one of the biggest bombshells of our time regarding reptiles and just, I, I think it's a huge bombshell, you know, finding out about these, uh, about these ven about venom and monitor lizards. Seriously. Yeah, it was. Um, like I said it's it's been very interesting to see how it's been received. You know, with the younger generation of scientists, no problems. You know, we've published so much data on this, and we actually have published more about this than we have than we know about other venom systems. But you know, a lot of people still won't accept it. Much like how we know more about evolution than we do about gravity, but there's a lot of people who still won't accept evolution. You know, so it's you know, one of you know, these things where you have people who are not acting like scientists. They're arguing from a position rather than arguing from data. Yeah. I, can we go back really quick to this, to the whole scene of the water buffalo in Komodo? Yep. So you're saying on my notes that there's never been a documented case of a Komodo dragon killing a buffalo by himself. Like, is, is it exactly that so? The wounds, you know, Komodos will have a go at anything. You know, like any big predator, they'll opportunistically attack anything that comes by. So, but the wounds that they inflict are far too small relative to the size of a thousand kilo or more water buffalo. You know, they're massive animals. So for them, it's just, you know, just a flesh wound. So they, it's not going to kill them and they scamper off. Well, they bail straight into the water and get infected from their own crap. Oh, man, that's crazy. You know, it's been that simple all along of this unnatural encounter of these animals stranded on these islands, trapped in these few small valleys. And it has about as much to do with the natural world as it would taking, you know, cows and catapulting or catapulting them out into the water <laughs> to be hammered by great whites. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so fascinating. Okay. Well, uh, you know, Dr. Brian Fry, I've, you are so fascinating. Can you join me in the after show so we can discuss more about this? Cause my mind is just blown. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That sounds Glad great. You. And, um, if anyone is interested in f reading more about your work, I know you, you sent me two of your books. Do you want to plug those and let people know where they can find your books and maybe find you on social um, media? Yeah, so the books, the books can be found, um, and Amazon, but if you just go to my webpage, venomdoc.com, I've quietly put both of them up there in the lab publications section, hidden way down near the bottom. And you can download PDFs of both of them because they were both published in 2015. They've had a really good print run, so I'm just giving the PDFs away now. You know, science to the people. 
There you go. So one is the Venomous Reptiles textbook, and the other one is my extremely demented memoirs of my pre-marriage life, when, <laughs> as my wife puts it, I spent 10 months of the year traveling to far-off places, actively trying to get myself killed in unusual ways. So since being married, I haven't had any snake bites. I've only broken one bone. That was just a very you know slight fracture of the right process of L3 in my back. And that was being stupid in Brazil and free showing off and free climbing a cliff. And of course I fell um, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to the absolute carnage of my pre-marriage life, which, you know, included the hallmark of um, you know, breaking my back one time in three places and spending four months in uh, Beverly Hills hospital, having it reconstructed by one of the best neurosurgeons in the world, rebuild it kind of like Wolverine or he rebuilt three of the vertebrae out of cobalt metal alloy. I have the most, wicked x-ray you can imagine it has oh those three vertebrae artificial discs in between them you know it just it looks so cool on the x-ray <laughs> oh my god dude you I why do you not man you need your own tv show we're working on that you know we've got um we've got a pitch that's attracting some interest and we'll see how it goes now i mean i've done a lot of documentaries uh, i've been in about 100 documentaries but we have an idea of a very different take on the uh, natural history world that's, I think, a bit more topical for these dystopian times that we live in. People are ready for the unnatural world, as we're calling it. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. That's awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Yeah, please, uh, let's head on over to the after show. If you want to join us for the after show, head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max to listen to the Patreon only after show with Dr. Brian Fry. And I'll put the links in the show notes. I will also put the links of uh, with where you can read his books and go to his website, thevenomdoc.com. Brian, thank you so much. Let's head on over to the after show. No problems at all. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.